At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our Christmas message series, Eyewitness, finding your Christmas story in theirs, where you're invited to find your story in the extraordinary experiences of the men and women who witnessed the very first Christmas. Together, we'll see that no matter who we are, the coming of the Christ was for us. Uh, well, this morning, uh, we're kicking off our series, uh, Eyewitnesses for Christmas, where we're taking time over the next few weeks to look at some of the people who had a firsthand account uh, to Jesus's birth. Uh, and originally, uh, we were going to start this series by looking at um, Mary and kind of um, she's kind of the preeminent witness of Jesus's birth. Uh, uh, but actually, as, as I was kind of up this morning praying and prepping and kind of gathering a few uh, things last minute, I just, for some reason, I just felt like that wasn't what was necessary for uh, our church family this morning in light of kind of the events of this week. We're going to go in a different direction this morning and actually look at a different witness um, in, in the Christmas story because I think uh, God has some things that we just need reminded of a little bit this morning. So we're actually going to be in Luke chapter 2. We're going to look at one verse, but it kind of comes in a, in a key context. And so um, I'm going to read our passage for us. And then uh, just pray over our time in God's Word, and then we're going to kind of jump in and study uh, it together. And so this is Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful for the eternal nature and the steadiness of your word. Thank you that it is a rock we can stand upon, that it is true, and it rings true in all moments of life. And as we turn to it now, to a story that for many of us might be familiar, we pray that you would come and by your spirit engage us in a fresh way through your word. That you would take off the blinders of familiarity and instead you would allow us to see your truth that you want to reveal about your son by your spirit, that it might impact us for this moment and this day as your people. So we give you this time. We give you our hearts and our minds. God, I give you my voice would you use this moment to speak to your church by your spirit, I pray, in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 14 is one of kind of those classic Christmas verses, isn't it? Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. And most popular translations say, and goodwill towards men. There's kind of a different way you could translate that, but... We see that 
phrase slapped on Christmas decor left and right, hung up in houses. We sing about it in popular songs, crying peace on earth. And yet, in moments like what took place this past week, those words sometimes can feel a little bit hollow and a little bit empty. Sometimes evil and tragedy, suffering, comes in such a way that it can take things that we love and kind of shake and cause us to question and ask, is this real? Is this true? Yes, peace on earth, but it sure doesn't feel quite like there's a lot of peace right now. And I think oftentimes in kind of our uh, nature, our culture, when those moments kind of come, we kind of want to get like past them as quick as possible, right? Like we don't often want to take time to kind of wrestle or feel or I don't know how you are like me. I'm a classic emotional stuffer. So I'm like, oh, pain, suffering? Like, how can I hide from that as quickly as possible? And I think Christmas, sometimes it feels like that moment. Like, we feel the pain, we, we feel the tragedy, we wrestle with that, and then we're like, but it's, it's Christmas. Like, yay, right? And then there's moments that force us to go, well, what, what is this really all about? What kind of hope, what kind of message does Christmas have in the midst of a community that's suffering or in the midst of the pain of my own life. And if we're not careful, sometimes phrases like peace on earth kind of become a cliche. The uh, lead singer of the band U2, Bono, in one of his songs wrestles with the reality of peace on earth in the midst of suffering and tragedy. He wrote a song on their album called All the Things That You Can't Leave Behind. It's actually titled Peace on Earth, and it was written in response to significant bombings that took place in Northern Ireland in 1998. But in many ways, he echoes the wrestling we feel when tragedy strikes us. He writes these words in the song. He begins, heaven on earth, we need it now. I'm sick of all this hanging around. Sick of sorrow. I'm sick of the pain. I'm sick of hearing again and again that there's going to be peace on earth. In the chorus, he says, Jesus, can you take the time to throw a drowning man a line? Peace on earth. Tell the ones who hear no sound, whose sons are living in the ground, peace on earth. Jesus, in the song you wrote, the words are sticking in my throat, peace on earth. Hear it every Christmas time, but hope in history won't rhyme, so what's it worth, this peace on earth? And I think we're honest that oftentimes in the midst of tragedy, we can have those same questions and feelings. We don't like to admit it, We like to come into church and, no, we're good. Yeah, great. But I don't know about you. My heart hurt this week. I wrestled with the questions of where's God in the midst of this. I felt the sting and pain. God, are you real? Do you really, like, what is going on? What do we say in the midst of immense suffering and pain and tragedy? And we question. Yeah, the words stick in my throat too. Peace on earth. Is that for real? And yet, I think it is. I think that God actually does have a message that it's important for us to hear and ministers in our day and that can speak even to our tension this morning. 
So for a few moments, I just want to reflect a little bit on just the words of the angels and their witness in this kind of classic Christmas refrain, refrain, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, or peace on earth, goodwill towards men. I think there's three things that I want to encourage you to think through out of the cry of the angels in Luke 2, 14. The first thing is I want us to consider the message of peace that the angels bring in this verse. They come, they announce, right? There's this significant moment. There's some shepherds out in a field. They're watching their flock. They're doing their thing. And all of a sudden, some angels show up and they say, hey, this Messiah that's been promised for a long time, he's actually going to come and he's going to be born in the town that you're just outside of. And naturally, the shepherds are kind of afraid. I would be too if an angel suddenly showed up in the middle of the night. And I always love when the angel shows up and says, like, fear not. You're like, what? Like, Am I just supposed to be like, oh, okay, this is normal, great. Right, but they announce the birth of this Savior. And then verse 13, suddenly there's this whole multitude of angels, and they're crying a singular message, glory to God in the highest. So they focus heavenward, and they crawl to glory. We're going to come back to that phrase in a little bit, but I want to focus on the second call and cry that they have. And on earth peace, or peace on earth, goodwill. Towards men, goodwill towards human beings. They bring a message that the Savior is coming and what he is bringing with him is in fact peace. But what does it mean that Jesus actually brings peace? What are they pointing towards in their message? I think oftentimes when we think of the idea or the word peace, we kind of have the, conf- the concept in our mind of two enemies that are in conflict that kind of lay down their weapons, or put a ceasefire, or stop. At some point, the conflict kind of resides. And our thought pattern is naturally to think that what the angels are proclaiming is that idea of peace. But the message of peace that the angels are actually bringing is much more robust. It's much bigger than that. The word translated here, peace, is actually rooted in an Old Testament concept of peace and the word shalom. And the word shalom that these shepherds would have been familiar with in the idea of peace means much more than just two enemies stopping their conflict. What it actually means is that God is bringing universal flourishing back to his creation. Professor Cornelius Plantinga, in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, which is a phenomenal book, helps us understand the idea of shalom when he writes this. He says, Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. That's what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more, far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspire joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Here's his key words. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. 
You see, this week, all of us felt an ache that things were not the way that it was supposed to be, that this isn't how the world should be, that this isn't what ultimately should take place. And what we remind ourselves in the cry and the message of peace is that that is true. Our world is not meant to be the way it is, that God did not create or intend the world to be a place of brokenness and division and pain and suffering. That in fact, God created the world to be full of shalom. When you go all the way back to the beginning of the story, God created the world to exist in perfect harmony. He created human beings as his pinnacle of creation to live in such a way in which there was flourishing in their relationship with God, with one another, with themselves, with all of creation. That God's original intention for the world was for it to be right and good. And yet when we read in the story, we see that because of our sin, the sin of human beings, brokenness enters the world and the world falls from what it should be to not the way it should be. And yet our hearts ache for the original world we were intended for. To be in a world where there is perfect justice, where there is no murder, where there's no disease, where there's no brokenness. Moments like this past week wake us up to say, this isn't how things should be. But it also forces us to ask the question, well, how do we actually get to the place that we should and what we were ultimately created for? Well, that's what the angel's message is about. That at the arrival of Jesus, God is now working to reestablish his creation and bring back the flourishing he intended. That the peace that comes is not just peace of mind, it's a fullness of peace in which things will be restored to God's original intention. And their harrowing cry calls out across all things that through the Messiah, God is in fact bringing peace. And the biblical authors actually pick up this concept of peace in their writings in the church. Paul uses this idea of peace constantly to talk about this fullness, this this robust world in which justice and right and everything is set back to right. Paul will say things like, in Christ we have peace with God, that because of Jesus, our relationship with God, which is broken because of our sin, is restored ultimately because of what he has done in his life, death, and resurrection. Paul will remind us in Ephesians 2 that because of Christ, we have peace with one another, that God is working to restore humanity back, that he's breaking down the walls of division and bringing humanity back into one new place, one new people in God to be united the way we were intended and created. We're reminded in verses like Philippians 4, 7 that we have peace with ourselves, that in the ministry of Christ, God restores us in our identity and who he fashioned and created us to be. That the brokenness that we feel in our hearts in Christ, God is redeeming and restoring even us ourselves. And Paul reminds us that through Christ in Colossians 1, we have peace with all creation. When we talk about peace on earth, this is what the Bible means. It's not, it's not, a, it's not just this simple, narrow concept. It's this full, robust idea of a world that our hearts long for, where all these things we experience of brokenness with ourselves, each other, the world, God, man, it's restored. It's brought back into flourishing. And what the angels cry in this message is glory to God because peace is coming to the earth. And it's here. 
And it's ultimately coming in Jesus. And so I think, again, the story of Jesus' birth calls us to consider peace and what God is bringing through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But I think this phrase also calls us to understand and consider a little bit the paradox of peace. Because peace comes in some pretty unexpected ways. And I think when you locate this verse kind of in the larger context of what Luke is saying, you see some kind of paradoxical elements. All right, a paradox is simply a statement or an idea that seems contradictory or is kind of opposed to our common sense, and yet it kind of gets in some ways and points us at some deeper truth or forces us to think differently, right? Paradoxes, familiar paradoxes like I always lie. You can think about that one for a minute. Oscar Wilde said, I can resist anything but temptation. The call of peace here in the context of Luke is a little bit of a paradox. And it's a little bit of a paradox in a couple ways. You kind of see it if you look back at the context it's set in, and you kind of see it as it leads you forward into the rest of his gospel. Luke sets the call and claim, the glory of God on the highest and peace on earth, in a very interesting context of Jesus' Jesus' birth. You actually can see it in the very first verse of Luke chapter 2. Listen to the context that Jesus' birth comes and the cry to these shepherds actually happen in. Verse two, or verse one of chapter two, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, we hear that the Savior is born. We hear that he's going to bring peace as the angels proclaim it. But Luke actually sets the context and cry of peace within the claims of peace by another person, namely Caesar Augustus. Now, that's often a verse we throw away. We're like, oh, Caesar Augustus, move on. Tell me the good stuff, right? Like we don't, like some historical fact. But when you consider the cry that peace is coming on the earth in the actual political and social reality of Jesus' day, Luke is making a profound statement in highlighting what the angels say. Let Let me help you understand this a little bit. So Caesar Augustus is the Roman emperor at the time of Jesus' birth. And Rome controls the known world, essentially from Europe all the way to through the Middle East, the entire Roman Empire. And they control this through, ultimately, their military dominance. And the head of their, that empire is, in fact, Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus' original name was Octavian. And Octavian was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Hang with me. I know, history lesson. You're like, oh, here we go. But it's important, all right, for you to understand the context. When Julius Caesar died, Octavian assumed power over the Roman Empire. And one of the first things he did was he heralded Julius Caesar as a god. That Julius Caesar was in fact a god and when he died went to be with God. Well, that was certainly convenient for Octavian because if Julius Caesar was a god and he was his adopted son, that made him the son of God. Which was a common title used for him in those days. 
It was printed on coins throughout the empire that he was, in fact, the son of God. And one of the first things that Octavian did in 26 BC was he set a strategy to bring peace to the entire Roman Empire, what was known as the Pax Romana. And the way he was going to achieve that peace was in two ways. One, through a strong military, and two, through heavy taxation of non-Roman citizens. So Luke, as he tells the story, this is the context that he sets it in. That Jesus' parents now have to register to go to their original towns to be heavily taxed because Caesar's controlling the empire as the son of God to bring peace everywhere. And then suddenly, some angels show up to the shepherds and say, hey, God's actually bringing his peace through this baby that's born in the town over here. So the context of the announcement and arrival of Jesus is actually set in contrast to the claims of peace that the world tries to achieve through strength and power and might. What God is trying to show, even in the birth of Jesus, is that true peace, true flourishing, does not come through Caesar. It does not come through the power of the empire. It does not come through the normal means of our world. That peace actually comes in ways that we often do not expect. We live in a world where claims for peace come from all over the place. Even this week, if you read the news, if you read articles, if you read comments, it seemed like everyone is offering some way or solution to the division and pain and suffering of our world. We need more government. We need more technology. We need more information. We need more of this. If we find this magic bullet, then we'll actually figure it out. And in many ways, they just echo the same claims that the empire claimed in Jesus' birth. But Luke sets a paradox and says, no, peace doesn't come to the earth through those means. Power is not the way to peace. Military night is not the way ultimately towards peace. Peace comes through the Messiah. And Luke sets the context of this cry for peace in a significant way to show the contrast of the way God brings peace through the way the world brings peace. See, I think oftentimes there's kind of a thing we miss when we read this. Sometimes we get so familiar that we miss the kind of context behind. So in verse 13, when it says, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. I think what we have in our mind is kind of like there's this heavenly choir and angelic robes singing. But that's not actually the context. This phrase that we translate, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, is actually rooted in the Old Testament phrase which talks about God having armies of angels. You could translate just as easily that suddenly there was with the angel the armies of heaven proclaiming and praising God, saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. You see, the image here of what is being proclaimed is not a passive group of angels singing a nice choir song. The image that Luke is bringing forth is that this is the army of God the one who's referred to in the Old Testament as the God of angel armies, coming to declare the incredible nature of what God is doing in the world. 
And how is God going to bring his peace? Is it going to be through his army of angels? Is it going to be through his power? No, it's going to be through a baby that's born in a town that no one was paying attention to. You see, Luke's trying to set up a paradox. He's trying to force us to say, how does peace come into the world? Does it come through the normal means? No, it comes through the unexpected means. And in fact, as you read through the rest of Luke, we don't have time for all of that today, what you will constantly see is Luke pointing to the reality that God's peace, God's flourishing, the goodness of God that comes in the world often comes in upside-down ways. That's why Jesus will say things like in Luke 6, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who suffer. That often flourishing comes not through the ways of the world, but through the ways of God's kingdom, which are upside down. Peace doesn't come through Rome's power. Peace doesn't come through military strength. It comes through a savior that's born. And in many ways, it's a reminder to us that as we pursue peace in our lives, as we cry out for peace in our world, that peace will not be found in the normal worldly ways. Peace doesn't come through power, it comes through sacrifice. Peace doesn't come by what we consume, it comes by what we give away. Peace doesn't come through success. And recognition. Oftentimes, peace comes to the lowest and least of these. And so, when we hear the cry for peace, when we look for peace, when we desire peace, do we understand the way in which God has revealed that his peace will come? Because as we do, as we consider the message of peace, as we understand the paradox that he points us towards, then Luke very clearly leads us to the last thing that I think we need in response to this, that you and I are to embrace the king of peace. The key to understanding the cry for peace is really rooted in the first half of the verse, glory to God in the highest. This is a statement of emphatic praise by the hosts and armies of heaven towards God. And why are these angels ascribing glory to God and honor and praise to him? Precisely because what he says in verse 11. Because this day in the city of David, a Savior who is the Messiah, the King, is born. Because God is finally fulfilling his promises to his people. That God is now beginning to bring his kingdom to bear on the earth. And how's it going to come? It's going to come through a person. Jesus Christ. And that Jesus is going to reveal to us the reality of God's glory. And who God is in his fullness. That's why John will write in his prologue. To the story of Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus is the fullness of the message of peace because he is peace. It's who he is, it's what he brings into the world. And what Luke wants to remind us here is that peace on earth, the peace that we search for, ultimately comes only through Jesus. He is the true prince of peace. And he reigns over a kingdom of peace 
that brings flourishing to all. It is only when we embrace Jesus as the king of peace, when we learn to walk in his ways, that we begin to experience in part now the flourishing that God will bring fully and finally on the earth in his return. Discipleship is simply the process in which we learn to live the way of Jesus. And as we learn to live the way of Jesus, we begin to see the flourishing that God intends for his creation come to be born in our life in anticipation of the future that is to come. As we look around to say, where is this peace in our world? Be reminded today that the peace you look for comes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is what your heart longs for. He is what you're looking for in the midst of your questioning and wrestling. It is he who brings hope in the midst of the worst moments of life. That's why he says peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased, on whom his favor rests. Peace and goodwill are brought to those who embrace Jesus. Because when we embrace Jesus, we find an unshakable kingdom that no event of the earth can rob us of the peace that is found within him. And so my encouragement to you this morning as we hear the cry of the angels, brothers and sisters, is to once again look to Christ, to be reminded that he is what our hearts are looking for in the midst as we walk through this season as a church and as a community. He is the peace we want and desire. I've used this illustration before, but it felt appropriate to use again today. There was another poet who wrestled with the reality of peace on earth in the midst of pain and suffering. The American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow famously wrote the poem Christmas Bells. We know it oftentimes by a different name. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. And if you ever read that poem, Longfellow, like Bono wrestles with the cry of peace on earth in the midst of a world of brokenness and pain and suffering. He actually wrote that poem during the Civil War. And Longfellow knew suffering. He had tragically lost his wife two years prior to writing the poem. When he wrote the poem, he had actually traveled to D.C. to be with his son who was significantly wounded in the war. And as he sat during that Christmas season and wrestled with the reality of a world that was in chaos and brokenness and war and strife and suffering and loss, he reflected on the Christmas season and struggled with the cry of peace on earth. He begins the poem with the well-known words, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Longfellow will continue on in the poem to wrestle with the reality of what those words mean in a world of brokenness and suffering. And finally, in kind of a last cry towards the end of the poem, in a second to last stand, as he says, and in despair... I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I mean, let's be honest, don't you feel like that sometimes? 
who hasn't for a moment said, man, it sure seems like the evil in this world seems stronger than the peace of the kingdom of God, who hasn't despaired and felt the sting and pain in their soul and questioned, and says, where is God in the midst of this? But Longfellow ends his poem this way, and I think in doing so gives us the right direction to respond to the call and cry of peace. This is his closing stanza. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Friends, be reminded this morning, our God is not dead. That all 2,000 years ago, the greatest act of evil that could ever happen in human history happened when evil, sinful, wicked men tried to kill the most perfect human being and God himself on a sinner's cross. And God watched in agony as his son suffered insurmountable pain. And yet three days later, he walked out of that tomb and said, Satan doesn't win. Sin doesn't conquer. Evil doesn't get the final word. God isn't dead. Our Savior is alive. And that's what gives us hope in the midst of our own pain. And the truth of the gospel is the place that we need to look in the midst of our own pain is right to the cross of Jesus and say, my Savior is alive. And one day he's coming to restore his kingdom to this earth. My prayer for all of us as we journey through this is that we would look to Christ. We would hear his message of peace. We would trust and embrace it and that we would be reminded in the midst of our own grief that we can grieve with hope. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I'm not even sure what to say right now other than thank you. Thank you that you're alive. Thank you that you're at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding on our behalf. Thank you for your spirit that ministers your presence to us in the midst of our pain and suffering. Thank you for hope that one day this world will be set back to right and that things will be the way they are supposed to be. God, we're carrying some hurts together today. And we don't need that hope to be some abstract concept. We need it to be true in our hearts. To speak your peace that passes understanding down deep into our souls this morning. So as we hear the truth of your word and as we prepare to respond to it and worship to you, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would come to each one of us that it would minister the love and presence of Jesus, that it would fix our eyes towards him and his 
cross and empty tomb. And while we know that doesn't erase all the pain in this moment, what it does give us is a hope, a foundation on which we can stand upon to journey forward. So we invite you to come and minister to our hearts right now, God. Do what only you can do in this place, we pray. In your holy and precious name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself today.